Chapter Six of Aisha: The Return of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. Aisha: The Return of She by H. Roger Haggard. Chapter Six: In the Gate. Oh, that rush through space! Folk falling thus are supposed to lose consciousness, but I can assert that this is not true. Never were my wits and perceptions more lively than while I travelled from that broken glacier to the ground, and never did a short journey seem to take a longer time. I saw the white floor, like some living thing, leaping up through empty air to meet me. Then, finis. Crash! Why, what was this? I still lived. I was in water, for I could feel its chill, and going down, down, till I thought I should never rise again. But rise I did, though my lungs were nigh to bursting first. As I floated up towards the top, I remembered the crash which told me that I had passed through ice. Therefore I should meet ice at the surface again. Oh, to think that after surviving so much, I must be drowned like a kitten and beneath a sheet of ice. My hands touch it. There it was above me, shining white like glass. Heaven be praised! My head broke through. In this low and sheltered gorge, it was but a film, no thicker than a penny, formed by the light frost of the previous night. So I rose from the deep and stared about me, treading water with my feet. Then I saw the gladdest sight that ever my eyes beheld, for on the right, not ten yards away, the water running from his hair and beard was Leo. Leo alive, for he broke the thin ice with his arms as he struggled towards the shore from the deep river. Footnote. Usually, as we learned afterwards, the river at this spot was quite shallow, only a foot or two in depth. It was the avalanche that, by damming it with fallen heaps of snow, had raised its level very many feet. Therefore, to this avalanche, which had threatened to destroy us, we in reality owed our lives. For had the stream stood only at its normal height, we must have been dashed to pieces upon the stones. End of footnote. He saw me also, and his grey eyes seemed to start out of his head. "'Still living, both of us, and the precipice passed,' he shouted in a ringing, extortant voice. "'I told you we were led.' "'Aye, but whither?' I answered, as I too fought my way through the film of ice. Then it was I became aware that we were no longer alone, for on the bank of the river, some thirty yards from us, stood two figures, a man leaning upon a long staff and a woman, he was a very old man, for his eyes were horny, his snow-white hair and beard hung upon the bent breast and shoulders, and his sardonic wrinkled features were yellow as wax. They might have been those of a death-mask cut in marble. There, clad in an ample monkish robe, and leaning upon the staff, he stood, still as a statue, and watched us. I noted it all, every detail, although at the time I did not know that I was doing so, as we broke our way through the ice towards them, and afterwards the picture came back to me. 
Also I saw that the woman, who was very tall, pointed to us. Nearer the bank, or rather to the rock edge of the river, its surface was free of ice, for here the stream ran very swiftly. Seeing this, we drew close together and swam on side by side to help each other if need were. There was much need, for in the fringe of the torrent the strength that had served me so long seemed to desert me, and I became helpless, numbed too, with the biting coldness of the water. Indeed, had not Leo grasped my clothes, I think that I should have been swept away by the current to perish. Thus aided, I fought on a while, till he said, I am going under, hold to the rope end. So I gripped the strip of Yak's hide that was still fast about him, and, his hands thus freed, Leo made a last splendid effort to keep us both, cumbered as we were with the thick, soaked garments that dragged us down like lead from being sucked beneath the surface. Moreover, he succeeded where any other swimmer of less strength must have failed. Still I believe that we should have drowned, since here the water ran like a mill-race, had not the man upon the shore, seeing our plight and urged thereto by the woman, run with surprising swiftness in one so aged, to a point of rock that jutted some yards into the stream, past which we were being swept, and seating himself, stretched out his long stick toward us. With a desperate endeavor, Leo grasped it as we went by, rolling over and over each other, and held on. Round we swung into the eddy, found our feet, were knocked down again, rubbed and pounded on the rocks. But still gripping that stuff of salvation, to his end of which the old man clung like a limpet to a stone, while the woman clung to him, we recovered ourselves, and, sheltered somewhat by the rock, floundered towards the shore. Lying on his face, for we were still in great danger, the man extended his arm. We could not reach it, and worse, suddenly the stuff was torn from him. We were being swept away. Then it was that the woman did a noble thing, for, springing into the water, yes, up to her armpits, and holding fast to the old man by her left hand, with the right she seized Leo's hair and dragged him shorewards. Now he found his feet for a moment, and throwing one arm about her slender form, steadied himself thus, while with the other he supported me. Next followed a long, confused struggle, but the end of it was that three of us, the old man, Leo and I, rolled in a heap upon the bank and lay there gasping. Presently I looked up. The woman stood over us, water streaming from her garments, staring like one in a dream at Leo's face, smothered as it was with blood running from a deep cut in his head. Even then I noticed how stately and beautiful she was. Now she seemed to awake, and glancing at the robes that clung to her splendid shape, said something to her companion, then turned and ran towards the cliff. As we lay before him, utterly exhausted, the old man who had risen contemplated us solemnly with his dim eyes. He spoke, but we did not understand. Again he tried another language, and without success. A third time, and our ears were opened, for the tongue he used was Greek. Yes, there in Central Asia he addressed us in Greek. Not very pure, it is true, but still Greek. "'Are you wizards?' he said. 
that you have lived to reach this land? Nay, I answered in the same tongue, though in broken words, since of Greek I had thought little for many a year. For then we should have come otherwise. And I pointed to our hearts and the precipice behind us. They know the ancient speech. It is as we were told from the mountain, he muttered to himself. Then he asked, Strangers, what seek you? Now I grew cunning and did not answer, fearing lest, should he learn the truth, he would thrust us back into the river. But Leo had no such caution, or rather all reason had left him. He was light-headed. We seek, he shuddered out. His Greek, which had always been feeble, now was simply barbarous and mixed with various Tibetan dialects. We seek the land of the fire mountain that is crowned with the sign of life. The man stared at us. So you know, he said, then broke off and added, And whom do you seek? Her, answered Leo wildly, the queen. I think that he meant to say the priestess or the goddess, but could only think of the Greek for queen, or rather something resembling it. Or perhaps it was because the woman who had gone looked like a queen. Oh, said the man, you think a queen. Then you are those for whom we are bidden to watch. Nay, how can I be sure? Is this a time to put questions? I gasped angrily. Answer me one, rather. Who are you? I? Strangers, my title is Guardian of the Gate, and the lady who was with me is the Kania of Kaloon. At this point Leo began to faint. That man is sick, said the Guardian, and now that you have got your breath again, you must have shelter, both of you, and at once. Come, help me. So, supporting Leo on either side, we dragged ourselves away from that accursed cliff and sticks-like river up a narrow winding gorge. Presently it opened out, and there, stretching across the glade, we saw the gate. Of this all I observed then, for my memory of the details of this scene and of the conversation that passed is very weak and blurred, was that it seemed to be a mighty wall of rock in which a pathway had been hollowed, where doubtless once passed the road. On this side of this passage was a stair, which we began to ascend with great difficulty, for Leo was now almost senseless, and scarcely moved his legs. Indeed, at the end of the first flight he sank down in a heap, nor did our strength suffice to lift him. While I wondered feebly what was to be done, I heard footsteps, and looking up, saw the woman who had saved him descending the stair, and after her, two robed men with a tartar cast of countenance, very impassive, small eyes and yellowish skin. Even the sight of us did not appear to move them to our astonishment. She spoke some words to them, whereon they lifted Leo's heavy frame, apparently with ease, and carried him up the steps. We followed, and reached a room that seemed to be honed from the rock above the gateway, where the woman called Kania let us. From it we passed through other rooms, one of them a kind of kitchen, in which a fire burned, till we came to a large chamber, evidently a sleeping place, for in it were wooden bedsteads, mattresses, and rugs. Here Leo was laid down, and with the assistance of one of his servants, the old guardian undressed him, at the same time motioning me to take off my own garments. 
This I did gladly enough for the first time during many days, though with great pain and difficulty, to find that I was a mass of wounds and bruises. Presently our host blew upon a whistle, and the other servant appeared, bringing hot water in a jar, with which we were washed o'er. Then the guardian dressed our hurts with some soothing ointment, and wrapped us round with blankets. After this broth was brought, into which he mixed medicine, and giving me a portion to drink where I lay upon one of the beds, he took Leo's head upon his knee, and poured the rest of it down his throat. Instantly a wonderful warmth ran through me, and my aching brain began to swim. Then I remembered no more. After this we were very, very ill. What may be the exact medical definition of our sickness I do not know, but in effect it was such as follows loss of blood, extreme exhaustion of body, paralyzing, shock to the nerves, and extensive cuts and contusions. These taken together produced a long period of semi-unconsciousness, followed by other period of fever and delirium. All that I can recall of those weeks while we remained the guests of the guardian of the gate may be summed up in one word, dreams. That is, until at last I recovered my senses. The dreams themselves are forgotten, which is perhaps as well, since they were very confused, and for the most part awful. A hodgepodge of nightmares, reflected without doubt from vivid memories of our recent and fearsome sufferings. At times I would wake up from them a little, I suppose when food was administered to me, and receive impressions of whatever was passing in the place. Thus I can recollect that yellow-faced old guardian standing over me like a ghost in the moonlight, stroking his long beard, his eyes fixed upon my face, as though he would search out the secrets of my soul. They are the men, he muttered to himself. Without doubt they are the men. Then walked to the window and looked up long and earnestly, like one who studies the stars. After this I remember a disturbance in the room, and dominating it, as it were, the rich sound of a woman's voice and the rustle of a woman's silks sweeping the stone floor. I opened my eyes and saw that it was she who had helped to rescue us, who had rescued us, in fact, a tall and noble-looking lady with a beauteous, weary face and liquid eyes which seemed to burn. From the heavy cloak she wore, I thought that she must have just returned from a journey. She stood above me and looked at me, then turned away with a gesture of indifference, if not of disgust, speaking to the guardian in a low voice. By way of answer he bowed, pointing to the other bed where Leo lay, asleep, and thither she passed with slow, imperious movements. I saw her bend down and lift the corner of a wrapping which covered his wounded head, and heard her utter some smothered words before she turned round to the guardian, as though to question him further. But he had gone, and being alone, for she thought me senseless, she drew a rough stool to the side of the bed, and seating herself studied Leo, who lay thereon, with an earnestness that was almost terrible, for her soul seemed to be concentrated in her eyes, and to find expression through them. Long she gazed thus, then rose and began to walk swiftly up and down the chamber, 
pressing her hands now to her bosom and now to her brow, a certain passionate perplexity stamped upon her face, as though she struggled to remember something and could not. Where and when, she whispered, oh, where and when? Of the end of that scene I know nothing, for although I fought hard against it, oblivion mastered me. After this I became aware that the regal-looking woman, called Kania, was always in the room, and that she seemed to be nursing Leo with great care and tenderness. Sometimes even she nursed me when Leo did not need attention, and she had nothing else to do, or so her manner seemed to suggest. It was as though I excited her curiosity, and she wished me to recover, that it might be satisfied. Again I awoke, how long afterwards I cannot say. It was night, and the room was lighted by the moon only, now shining in a clear sky. Its steady rays, entering at the window-place, fell on Leo's bed, and by them I saw that the dark, imperial woman was watching at his side. Some sense of her presence must have communicated itself to him, for he began to mutter in his sleep, now in English, now in Arabic. She became intensely interested, as her every movement showed. Then rising suddenly, she glided across the room, on tiptoe, to look at me. Seeing her coming, I feigned to be asleep, and so well that she was deceived. For I was also interested. Who was this lady whom the guardian had called the Kania of Kaloon? Could it be she whom we thought? Why not? And yet, if I saw Aisha, surely I should know her. Surely there would be no room for doubt. Back she went again to the bed, kneeling down beside Leo. And in the intense silence which followed, for he had ceased his mutterings, I thought that I could heard the beating of her heart. Now she began to speak, very low, and in the same bastard Greek tongue, mixed here and there with Mongolian words, such as are common to the dialects of Central Asia. I could not hear or understand all she said, but some sentences I did understand, and they frightened me not a little. Man of my dreams, she murmured, whence come you? Who are you? Why did the Hesea bid me to meet you? Then some sentences I could not catch. You sleep. In sleep the eyes are opened. Answer, I bid you. Say what is the bond between you and me. Why have I dreamt of you? Why do I know you? Why? And the sweet rich voice died slowly from a whisper into silence, as though she was ashamed to utter what was on her tongue. As she bent over him, a lock of her hair broke loose from its jeweled fillet, and fell across his face. At its touch Leo seemed to wake, for he lifted his gaunt white hand, and touched the hair, then said in English, Where am I? Oh, I remember. And their eyes met as he strove to lift himself, and could not. Then he spoke again in his broken, stumbling Greek. You're the lady that saved me from the water. Say, are you also that queen whom I have sought so long, and endured so much to find? I know not, she answered, in a voice as sweet as honey, a low, trembling voice. But true it is, I am a queen, if a Kania be a queen. Say then, queen, do you remember me? 
We have met in dreams, she answered. I think that we have met in the past that is far away. Yes, I knew it when first I saw you there by the river. Stranger with the well-remembered face, tell me, I pray you, how you are named. Leo Vinci. She shook her head, whispering, I know not the name, yet you I know. You know me? How do you know me? He said heavily, and seemed to sink again into slumber or swoon. She watched him for a while very intently. Then as though some force that she could not resist drew her, I saw her bend down her head over his sleeping face. Yes, and I saw her kiss him swiftly on the lips, then spring back crimson to the hair, as though overwhelmed with shame at this victory of her mad passion. Now it was that she discovered me. Bewildered, fascinated, amazed, I had raised myself upon my bed, not knowing it. I suppose that I might see and hear the better. It was wrong, doubtless, but no common curiosity overmastered me, who had my share in all this story. More, it was foolish, but illness and wonder had killed my reason. Yes, she saw me watching them, and such furies seemed to take hold of her that I thought my hour had come. Man, have you dared? She said in an intense whisper, and snatching at her girdle. Now in her hand shone a knife, and I knew that it was destined for my heart. Then in this sore danger my wit came back to me, and as she advanced I stretched out my shaking hand, saying, Oh, of your pity, give me to drink. The fever burns me, it burns. And I looked round like one bewildered, who sees not, repeating, Give me drink, you who are called guardian. And I fell back, exhausted. She stopped like a hawk in its stoop, and swiftly sheathed the dagger. Then taking a bowl of milk that stood on a table near her, she held it to my lips, searching my face, the while with their flaming eyes, for indeed passion, rage, and fear had lit them till they seemed to flame. I drank the milk in great gulps, though never in my life did I find it more hard to swallow. You tremble, she said, have dreams haunted you? Aye, friend, I answered, dreams of that fearsome precipice and of the last leap. Aught else? she asked. Nay, is it not enough? Oh, what a journey to have taken to befriend a queen! To befriend a queen? she repeated, puzzled. What means the man? You swear you have had no other dreams. I, I swear by the symbol of life and the mount of the wavering flame, and by yourself, O queen, from the ancient days. Then I sighed and pretended to swoon, for I could think of nothing else to do. As I closed my eyes, I saw her face, that had been red as dawn, turn pale as eve, for my words and all which might lie behind them had gone home. Moreover, she was in doubt, for I could hear her fingering the handle of the dagger. Then she spoke aloud, words for my ears, if they still were open. I am glad, she said, that he dreamed no other dreams, since had he done so and babbled of them it would have been ill-omened and I do not wish that one who has travelled far to visit us should be hurled to the death-dogs for burial, 
one moreover who although old and hideous still has the air of a wise and silent man now while i shivered at these unpleasant hints though what the death dogs in which people were buried might be i could not conceive to my intense joy i heard the foot of the guardian on the stairs heard him too enter the room and saw him bow before the lady how go these sick men niece footnote i found later that the kania atine was not simbri's niece but his great niece on the mother's side End of footnote, he said in his cold voice. They swoon, both of them, she answered. Indeed, is it so? I thought otherwise, I thought they woke. What have you heard, shaman? She asked angrily. I, oh, I heard the grating of a dagger in its sheath, and the distant baying of the death-hounds. "'And what have you seen, Shaman?' she asked again, looking through the gate you guard. "'Strange sight, Kanye, my niece. But men awake from swoons.' "'Aye,' she answered. "'So while this one sleeps, bear him to another chamber, for he needs change, and the Lord yonder needs more space and untainted air.' The guardian, whom she called Shaman, or magician, held a lamp in his hand, and by its light it was easy to see his face, which I watched out of the corner of my eyes. I thought that it wore a very strange expression, one moreover that alarmed me somewhat. From the beginning I had misdoubted me of this old man, whose cast of countenance was vindictive, as it was able. Now I was afraid of him. "'To which chamber, Kania?' he said with meaning. "'I think,' she answered slowly, to one that is healthful, where he will recover. The man has wisdom, she added as though in explanation. Moreover, hang the words from the mountain. To harm him would be dangerous. But why do you ask? He shrugged his shoulders. I tell you I heard the death-hounds bay. That is all. Yes, with you I think that he has wisdom. And the bee which seeks honey should suck the flower before it fades. Also, as you say, there are commands with which it is ill to trifle, even if we cannot guess their meaning. Then going to the door, he blew upon his whistle, and instantly I heard the feet of his servants upon the stairs. He gave them an order, and gently enough they lifted the mattress on which I lay, and followed him down sundry passages and past some stairs, into another chamber, shaped like that we had left, but not so large where they placed me upon a bed. The guardian watched me a while to see that I did not wake. Next he stretched out his hand and felt my heart and pulse, an examination the results of which seemed to puzzle him, for he uttered a little exclamation and shook his head. After this he left the room, and I heard him bolt the door behind him. Then, being still very weak, I fell asleep in earnest. When I awoke, it was broad daylight. My mind was clear, and I felt better than I had done for many a day, signs by which I knew that the fever had left me, and that I was on the right road to recovery. Now I remembered all the events of the previous night, and was able to weigh them carefully. This, to be sure, I did for many reasons, among them 
that I knew had been and still was in great danger. I had seen and heard too much, and this woman called Kania guessed that I had seen and heard. Indeed, had it not been for my hints about the symbol of life and the mount of flame, after I had disarmed her first rage by my artifice, I felt sure that she would have ordered the old guardian or shaman to do me to death in this way or the other. Sure also that he would not have hesitated to obey her. I had been spared partly because, for some unknown reason, she was afraid to kill me, and partly that she might learn how much I knew, although the death-hounds that bade, whatever that might mean. Well, up to the present I was safe, and for the rest I must take my chance. Moreover, it was necessary to be cautious, and if need were, to feign ignorance. So, dismissing the matter of my own fate from my mind, I fell to considering the scene which I had witnessed, and what might be its purport. Was our guest at an end? Was this woman Aisha? Leo had so dreamed, but he was still delirious. Therefore here was little on which to lean. What seemed more to the point was that she herself evidently appeared to think that there existed some tie between her and the sick man. Why had she embraced him? I was sure that she could be no wanton, nor indeed would any woman indulge for its own sake in such folly with a stranger who hung between life and death. What she had done was done because irresistible impulse, born of knowledge, or at least of memories, drove her on, though mayhap the knowledge was imperfect and the memories were undefined. Who save Aisha could have known anything of Leo in the past? None who lived upon the earth today. And yet why not, if what Cohen, the abbot, and tens of millions of his fellow worshippers believed were true? If the souls of human beings were in fact strictly limited in number, and became the tenants of an endless succession of physical bodies, which they changed from time to time, as we changed our worn-out garments. Why should not others have known him? For instance, the daughter of the pharaohs, who caused him through love to break the vows that he had vowed, knew a certain Callicrates, a priest of Isis, whom the gods cherish and the demons obey. Even Amenartas, the mistress of magic, Oh, now a light seemed to break upon me, a wonderful light. What if Amenartas and this Kania, this woman with royalty stamped on every feature, should be the same? Would not that magic of my own people that I have, of which she wrote upon the shirt, enable her to pierce the darkness of the past and recognize the priest whom she had bewitched to love her, snatching him out of the very hand of the goddess? What if it were not Aisha, but Amenartus reincarnate, who ruled this hidden land, and once more sought to make the man she loved break through his woes? If so, knowing the evil that must come, I shook even at its shadow. The truth must be learned, but how? Whilst I wondered, the door opened, and the sardonic, inscrutable old-faced man whom this Kania had called magician, and who called the Kanianese, entered and stood before me. End of chapter 6